You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to Energy Insiders, the Renew Economy podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? I'm very well, Giles. Trust your world. Trust our listeners are well. Just back from the uh, Smart Energy Conference uh, where I gather you were doing some on-location outside broadcast interviews. Oh, well, look, yes, I got inspired by your presentation in the opening uh, plenary, um, David. So, look, we've got a bit of, a bigger pack, uh, quite a big package tonight. We've got um, three interviews which we'll go into. Um, David, what for you were the highlights of the Smart Energy Conference? Look, I thought the turn-up was pretty good. And I thought, of course, all the solar behind-the-meter guys are very happy. I was particularly pleased to see a couple of more conventional um, looking electric vehicles there for the first time. We, we had a Hyundai and a Mitsubishi and a fully electric Hyundai uh, that looks like an i30 or, um, at about $40,000, a, a little bit pricey, but still a, p- a potential buy for the average average household. Yeah, look, I'm not too sure if that particular one was a fully electric one, but it will be fully electric by the time they introduce it in July. And I think Hyundai have got this um, one that you mentioned and they've also got a Kona, which is their sort of um, low-entry SUV coming out fully electric later on this year. So um, I think they might be first to market. So that's going to be interesting. Well, you know, it's great. And of course, South Korea has this fantastic heritage in, in batteries. Uh, and and they're a natural Hyundai and uh, electric vehicles seem to be uh, a pretty good fit. Well, in, yeah, interesting. And look, um, on the subject of batteries, actually, CoCam last week... Um, have commissioned and formally opened by Alinta a um, what's going to be what I think for the moment is the second biggest battery in Australia after the Tesla big battery. It's 30 megawatts. It's up in the Pilbara. It's basically replacing spinning reserve from a gas-fired power station, which is used to power um, Gina Reinhardt's uh, iron ore mine up there, which is quite interesting. Um, so, um, so that was quite interesting. Uh, absolutely, and um, you know, go on. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, look, and, and look, I guess the other observation I'd make about the conference was, look, it was pretty good atmosphere. I guess from difference from the last year, I guess there's still a bit of apprehension as to what is happening over the next couple of years, I guess, particularly for those people in, in, interested in large-scale solar. And as we we will hear in um, the interviews that, that I've recorded, um, the small-scale solar guys that you mentioned are pretty happy, but um, still a bit of uncertainty about the large-scale. And I guess after these interviews, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the National Energy Guarantee, the latest version of it, and what might be um, decided or considered or commented upon at the Coag Energy Minister meeting this Friday. So look, um, David, look, I thought without further ado, we're gonna, we've got three interviews um, coming up. We've got Mark Leslie from Fluence. We've got Jonathan Fisk from Solaray talking about the um, behind the meter market. And he's talking about both rooftop solar and battery storage. And we've also got Gavin Dites from Watchers talking about the importance of data. So let's kick off with Mark Leslie. He's the Asia-Pacific head of Fluence, and of course, they're building what's going to be the world-leading battery in, um, in energy storage. In this particular, set, um, in this particular um, installation, 
at a network site in Bendigo. Let's hear what he's got to say. I just be, Giles, I just might throw in there that Fluence are also the people that have developed at the utility scale the new uh, um, uh, DC coupled uh, battery product, you know, which has this potential, as we discussed last week, to reduce uh, total costs between PV and batteries by maybe 20%. Indeed, and I think he mentions that in this interview, so let's hear what he's got to say. Mark Leslie, the head of Fluence Australia, a battery storage company. Welcome to Energy Insiders. Glad to be here, Jules. Thank you. Look, you've been giving a presentation today about the new battery storage installation that you guys are going to build in Victoria. Um, I understand by this summer, I think, it's a 30 megawatt, 30 megawatt hour installation to go next to a network connection near Bendigo. You were describing this as a um, unique in the world or, or, or one of the first in the world of its type. Explain why that is. Sure. This is at the, the Bellarat terminal station that Osnet owns and operates. Um, in a deregulated market, it's very unique that a, a network operator or a, a transmission company could uh, own this asset because it will actually charge and discharge acting as a generator or load. And uh, in this case, Osnet will own the asset, but it will not operate it. Um, the asset will be operated by Energy Australia um, as a load and a generator uh, and be able to help them manage their portfolio within Victoria. It's, it's an interesting one because this after the Tesla big battery is going to be one of the sort of the three biggest um, batteries um, in Australia but it's, um, it's a different focus to what the Tesla big battery is or even the other battery that's been commissioned by Victoria or helped fund, partly funded by the Victorian and the federal governments which is going next to a solar farm. What exactly are you going to be doing? So again this is not associated with any generating facility. Um, it will help to uh, balance the grid north of Ballarat, which will allow additional renewable installations to come on board. It can also alleviate congestion uh, when the network is, uh, is full of electrons and it's difficult to serve the load in Melbourne. So this will actually enable the load in Melbourne to be served under almost all circumstances. Mm. The battery storage installation like the other one next to the solar farm and indeed the Tesla one has required a fair amount of um, support from the federal and state governments. I guess that's because the market for battery storage is not yet developed in Australia. Um, why are you confident um, that this can be developed or will be developed? Because it seems to be an exciting opportunity. That's very exciting. I think one of the things that uh, people often say is that batteries are very expensive. And a lot of times it means that the batteries may be uh, serving the wrong need or solving the wrong problem. Uh, batteries are very expensive for kind of arbitrage and FCAS plays. Um, when they're providing other services for the network like contingency management and things like that, uh, they could be much more, they could you know, clear without any subsidies today. So it's really just not just the cost that um, you've got to think about, it's actually their value and actually recognizing their value. Exactly. I think IEMO put out a paper even a couple of days ago about recognize the value for fast frequency response and other things like that. Um, again, I, I would stress that we, we had batteries that were 900 times more expensive in Chile 10 years ago that paid for themselves in two years. So when you're talking about contingency management and things like that, uh, if you're actually factoring the real cost of it, it can be very reasonable today. And um, am I right in thinking that you're about to regain the, uh, the, the, the mantle of the world's biggest battery with an installation in California? Well, there's a, there's a lot of new ones coming up, um, both here in Australia as well as in California. Um, but there, there's a surprising one that hasn't been announced yet, but uh, you know, a tender that has gone out for 250 megawatts, four hours uh, in California, which will come out, the answers to that will come out this summer. So it's an exciting time. 
And do you see more prospects in Australia for, for such similar battery storage installations? I think Australia is, if I were to look at a market that is perfect for many, many or all of the use cases, Australia outlines it, mm -hmm. right? You have long stringy grids, you have aging networks, you have isolated grids and you have you know, fringe of grid that probably should be isolated grid. You have load growth in you know, distribution areas. You have solar panels coming on that create you know, disturbances, uh, harmonics issues and, and flicker issues in uh, feeders and substations. Everything you could want is here. It's a great market. Looking forward to help serving. Well, good for you. Look, just one final question. Um, you mentioned in your presentation today about the issue with the interconnectors, and you sort of mentioned the fact that the log or the algorithms that were designed for these interconnectors were designed for the fossil fuel generators at the time. Now, could you just briefly explain that and why that is a problem and what the solution might be? Sure. Well, um, again, I'm not an engineer, but I'll do my best to explain how I think about it. Um, the algorithms were designed to... Uh, interpret and allow electrons to flow between states given that uh, the historic kind of generating positions so whether it be coal or gas or however as those coal or gas plants retire and are replaced by either digital inverter based facilities or wind based facilities um, oftentimes the energy components will look different you're going to have you know a cloud come over and the solar energy will disappear that wouldn't happen with a coal fire plant um, the frequency or, or voltage could differ. So what ends up happening is the uh, electrons going between states may not look like the um, electrons that the interconnections are expecting. So a couple things you could do, you could rewrite the algorithms. Uh, it's interesting, but you know, what would you write it for? Would you write it for the plants today, for the plants in five years, for the plants in 10 years? Because you know, your complete generation change over here. So it probably won't be rewritten for a while, but you'd probably end up wanting to put some kind of storage um, or stat statcoms or SVCs in order to make sure you could bring those interconnections up to their full thermal limits and allow the most electrons to flow between the states. It's interesting. It's just sort of part of all the different things that really need to be done to sort of upgrade the f the, the, this grid because we're, we're sort of charging into high renewable scenarios, particularly in South Australia, and it looks like Victoria will be the next to follow. So um, there's kind of a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, I would say keep an eye on, on Queensland and New South Wales. I mean, Queensland will have a gigawatt, and gig, almost two gigawatts of solar in the next 12 months installed. That's uh, going to be incredible. You know, the electrons are going to flow into New South Wales. Uh, now, New South Wales is also going through a huge transition. You know, 50% uh, of the generation here will be removed in the next 10 years or so. Now, that's going to be a totally, completely different grid in 10 years. So I think, uh, you know, all these states, even Western Australia, there's some amazing things going on that really need some attention from some smart people. Well, we look forward to seeing how that um, unfurls. And uh, Mark Leslie, um, head of uh, Fluence Australia, thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thank you. That was Mark Leslie, the head of Fluence Australia, which is building a big battery in Victoria and sounds like they're going to be building a lot more. And I also caught up with Jonathan Fisk, the director of Solaray Energy. Jonathan, um, thanks for your ongoing sponsorship of this podcast and um, thanks for joining the ep this episode. Oh, it's been a pleasure sponsoring it. We're really glad to be involved. Well, thank you very much and um, we really appreciate it. Look, I just um, thought I'd take the opportunity to ask um, a little more about the solar market. Now, you're in the residential and small business solar market. Um, by all accounts, that's going fantastically well at the moment. Tell us what's happening and, and, and what's driving it. 
Well, it, it's, it really is growing exponentially at the moment. It, it, it's just over the last couple of years, it's been incredible. Um, we really, at the moment, have almost a perfect storm with what's happening with technology. So all the small solar systems we sell now are very smart, mm. you know, both in terms of how they're installed, panel level, optimization, all internet connected, etc., etc. Um, we're doing a lot of storage backed up with that, so that's taking all the excess solar power, of course. Um, we also have low interest rates, which drives the economics. We have high energy prices and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, we, we are just growing exponentially all the time. And unfortunately, too, we have a lack of policy, which probably doesn't contribute to the um, the energy prices, apart from making them higher. Look, I'm fascinated. Almost a little tongue-in-cheek. I think we have a lot to thank our politicians for in this industry because, you know, their complete incompetence over the last 10 years has just done exactly what they didn't want it happen, or what, exactly what they didn't want to happen has already happened, which is people are flocking to renewables because of high energy prices, we've got a growing industry which is reducing costs, increasing quality, and nothing I can see says the energy is going to be any different, it's not going to generate more business for us despite some short-term uh, economic and environmental disasters. Yeah, well, it's interesting seeing the Bloomberg New Energy Finance updated forecasts um, yesterday that Kobad Bhavnagri showed, and it basically showed that um, small-scale solar was going to be 19 gigawatts come 2030, come what may. Yes, pretty much, and it is now unstoppable. That's how it feels working in this industry. It is unstoppable. Well, that's probably a good feeling. Look, I'm, I'm fascinated about the storage um, um, element that you just mentioned. So who is putting in storage and why? And what sort of um, installations are they looking at? Is there any particular brand they're favouring? Is there a particular sort of size of system that they're looking for? Okay, so, so store, the storage uptake has surprised us, particularly in residential markets. The people that are buying it are buying it for a number of reasons. One is there's a huge swell of, there's a huge undercurrent of we hate the power companies and people are putting in storage just to get a level of independence. A lot of people are buying them because they love the technology because it is really smart what we can do now with batteries, you know, in terms of preferential charging of batteries from solar or off-peak just to use it at the right time. A lot of the battery systems now work out your lifestyle patterns and optimise your savings, etc., etc. Um, and, of course, you know, the other thing is it does pay itself off, you know, and everyone has a different version of their own value. Some people go, well, if it's going to pay itself off over X years, that's great value. Others go, no, I won't do that. So, you know, but, but people are buying it for all those reasons. And what sort of the storage um, sort of um, brands that um, you're, you're installing? Well, the main ones we do are Tesla Powerwalls, we do lots and lots of those. The Sonnen batteries, which have a fantastic proposition in terms of, you know, you can actually swap your power bill for the battery. Um, and, you know, at the lower end scale, smaller people, some of the smaller end phase ACV batteries, but Sonnen and Tesla are really dominating the market at the moment. Still very much in the market for the early adopters, though, because I'm not too sure the economics quite make it, but, I mean, I guess it could be a bit like a lounge chair or, a, um, or something else you buy. Some of the people aren't sort of obsessed by um, sort of rate of returns. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Firstly, the return you get from a battery is a lot high, higher than you get from a term deposit at the bank, but, you know, that's relative for everyone. Um, secondly, it is the people, the early adopters and the people that, that love it. Um, and, um, you know, again, when you go and buy a TV, you can buy a $600 TV or a $6,000 TV. And, you know, what you get from that depends on what you want. Yeah. 
Any forecast about how this is going to play out then? So, so with that storage, are you, are, you, are you thinking of one in five houses or one in ten houses? And, and, and presumably that's just going to accelerate um, over the next couple of years? As... Well, I think over the next couple of years we're going to see uh, a much more rapid uptake of the current technology. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, going into the next decade, we will go into the second and third generation of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, by, you know, to, to use the 2030 number, I, I can't see how most households will not have distributed production and localised management of that as part of just living in a house. It's a bit like we do today, you know, you've got your own subboard, you've got this, you've got that, and you just run your own energy, and, and, and I think that's where we're going. Well, it's a fascinating future, and it's one future that I think is actually um, pretty much endorsed and pretty much predicted by the likes of AEMO and the CSIRO and the networks. It's a distributed future. Half of our power requirements going to come from distributed energy and the sort of technology that you guys are installing. Yeah, and, and we're really excited about it. You know, um, we, 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 we are in a very good position. We, we have a lot of market share. We've got a good reputation. But as I say, Solaray Energy has worked 10 long, hard years to become an overnight success. Oh, well, congratulations, and look, thanks for your ongoing support, and thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Giles. And that was Jonathan Fisk from Solaray Energy. So another person I caught up with was Gavin Dites from What Watches, um, one of um, Energy Insiders' um, sponsors. And um, Gavin, thanks for joining us on um, Energy Insiders, and thanks very much for your ongoing sponsorship. Thanks, Giles. Great to talk to you today. Look, um, you've just given us a presentation to the Smart Energy Council, and it's interesting for all the talk that we're hearing about sort of hardware and things like that, solar panels, battery storage, hydrogen, electric vehicles, you point out that one of the fundamental problems is the lack of data. Um, Explain why. Um, A lot of the problems that I see sort of firsthand from, you know, people that I care about is when it comes to energy comes really down to there is just no transparency in the system in you know 15 years our energy bills look the same they haven't changed um, we don't have that level of interaction that we have with everywhere else you know our banking has changed drastically in 10 years our you know our online life has changed drastically in 10 years we make decisions around how we do all of that but within energy we still don't have that capability and I just see it as a stepping stone to where we end up you know it it doesn't take away from all of the really nice things that are going to happen around virtual power plants and distributed energy they're all part of that but there's also what are the problems we can solve today and tomorrow which is you know simple things like budget apps that allow people transparency to control their spend in close to real-time basis Um, you know, energy fear is a, a huge problem in the community as well. And I mean, these are the ones that make me really passionate about trying to solve those problems. But there's got to be something better than a three month estimated bill right now. Um, and not a bat, you know, before you get to a battery, it can't be just one big step. Well, it's fascinating to wonder why this hasn't happened more quickly, actually, because, you know, for a long time we've talked about the fact that we go down to the petrol station, we fill the car up with petrol, and we know exactly then and there how much we've put in and how much um, it costs. And we can make that decision as we're filling up the balance. We go, okay, $20, that's it, that's all I can afford today, that's all I want to spend today. Yet in electricity, we have no visibility over it, more or less for most people. Um, and people don't get the bill until a couple of months later. They've actually forgotten what they used and why, and all they get is bill shock. Uh, That's the exact analogy I use as well, except I I equate it that right now, it's buying petrol with no dashboard on your car, 
no dollar price at the petrol station and no numbers on the Bowser and in three months I might estimate how much petrol you used and see if you're happy about it um, you know where the reality is normal people cross the road to save two or three cents on their petrol bill which you know might equate to a dollar or two in the past electricity was never dear enough when we did things like in-home displays in 2004-5 you know we had to make artificial tariffs to get people to engage today I just think we have this unique opportunity of ridiculously high price energy is the is the best time we're going to be able to get people to engage and they'll want to save money and they'll all want to spend money differently whether it's the person on $2,000 a quarter or the person on $100 a quarter um, they just want to be able to make that decision of oh I can do this and spend less like they do with petrol like they do with buying groceries like they do with eating out versus eating in um, mm. I just you know we need to give them that choice and it's a stepping stone to all the other complexities that happen. Well, that's right. Well, I think most people who have probably got solar panels and particularly battery storage and other systems now get that visibility because they usually come with apps or monitoring devices. I guess one of the big problems is, is that there's 60 or 70% of houses don't have it and there's a whole bunch of low-income houses that don't have any of these technologies and they're probably the people that need it best. So what's your suggestion then that this technology is made available? Because you, you guys clearly have got a product at What Watches, but, but, but how best to get this out in the market? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, our strategy today is, you know, has been an app partner enablement strategy. So we work with the solar analytics of the world, the habitats of the world, um, a whole heap of different companies to try and get them to drive that out into the marketplace. You know, the, the reality is the B2C space for energy devices and data like this outside of solar um, doesn't really exist and there's a lot of issues still to get around um, what we focus on is we need to get the cheapest possible device with the highest degree of functionality and we're, and we're constantly working on that and we'll sort of have that Nirvana model towards the end of the year a hundred percent success rate on installation the hard thing about energy is it still needs a proper electrician and install there is no magical plug-in box that's ever going to solve that um, so we want to make sure there's a 100% success rate every time that happens with the, the absolute best capture of metadata. Um, and the third is having a whole heap of different applications out there and partners out there so that there's no shortage of choice for the way every person wants to operate. Because you know, rarely do we all do something the same way. You know, I read emails differently to the way you read them in a different app to the way you read them. Um, and I bank different to the way you bank. And, you know, we've got to have that same level of just normal functionality and energy. Mm. Is there something that we should be expecting then of policymakers or even the big utilities and the big retailers? I mean, it might not be in their interest, I suppose, for people to moderate their use, but geez, it'd be a lot very useful for people to make that, those decisions on a summer afternoon saying, OK, I can keep the air conditioning on, it's going to cost me X dollars and I'm OK with that. You know, or even, even on a day-to-day -day basis, just having that monitoring and having that awareness of what appliance use how much electricity at what particular time? Um, to, to answer the question around policies and regulators, there's there's been this constant challenge between the regulated metering market and the, the sort of more consumer-driven energy monitoring space. Um, there's still this sort of strong desire that um, smart meters as we know them today are going to solve a lot of the problems. I, I spent 14 years with smart meters and I haven't seen them change in 14 years and I'm not convinced they're going to solve the problem. I'm also not convinced they have to solve the problem. Um, it, it's sort of like saying Telstra, you know, Telstra rolls out um, Cisco 
high-end switches in their exchanges that control billing and bandwidth and all these sorts of things, and that's how they connect you and disconnect you. That's perfectly fine. They don't push that into your house mm. um, because it serves a very good purpose. In the house, they give you a $350 device that's a, a modem that allows you to do Wi-Fi and parental controls and a whole heap of other things that are not relevant over there. Um, and I see the energy industry as the same. It's not a either-or solution. It's, it's actually we need to have things we can build consumer engagement around. Um, and things that manage grids and control grids like that and are regulated billing devices. And they're very different pieces of technology. One's designed for 80 bucks and 20 years life. One's gonna be designed probably for $150 and have a five year life because it's technology rather than a piece of infrastructure. Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if that look, answered all your question, by the way. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. That's fine. No, look, it's it, it's an interesting one. Um, and 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 what's next big with um with your company and your products then? Uh, so our next um, focus really is in um, scaling our product to the lowest possible price points. We see that as a key part of this industry is to get those price points to do. And I think all of us in this industry have that same problem: is what is scale, um, and. You know, we all have to get to those scale points to guarantee success and to get those those mass markets happening. Um, we'll do that through uh, focusing on our next 4G products, our hybrid comms products that will really take use of all of the, the communications options that are around. Our core monitoring product is, is exactly what we want it to be right now. Um, and our control product is exactly what we want it to be. There's still um, scale issues around backhaul comms. You know, we all have to deal with the the high price of 3G and all those sorts of things. So solving some of those discrete problems actually go towards how do we make this scale out because there's still barriers to getting this out there. Yeah, yeah. Look, it just will seem so obvious, really. I mean, just you just think about, you know, in, in public transport or anywhere, quite frankly, people, the amount of time people spend on their phones and their apps and just to have one of these to check what's happening at home with electricity, it just seems... Just seems all too obvious. <laughs> I, I, you know, honestly, I think sometimes it's as simple as if I could just get a text message every day saying I want to spend four dollars and I got to three dollars fifty. It's then at least your choice whether you stay under four dollars or go over four dollars. Yeah. Um, but at least it was a choice. And if we can make it into shift into that choice, I think we tick the first biggest box in the country, which is consumer engagement in energy because right now most people don't know where to start and don't know how to do it i mean of course we have these early adopters that do batteries and things like that but they're not the people um, that are 95 percent of the market and people don't understand kilowatt hours they've never understood their bills they don't understand how to reduce their energy i have some really basic conversations with people from i put solar on and my bill went up and it's like well did you change any of your plant i didn't know how to do that and it seems like common sense to us but these still things haven't been productized into, I suppose, apps, because that's how all people live these days. But when it does get into that model, they'll know exactly how to do it. Well, Gavin, look, thanks for joining um, us on Energy Insiders podcast today. Thanks, Joss. And that was Gavin Deitz, the uh, director from What Watches, and it was pretty interesting to see what those guys had to say. Those recordings were done at the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney last week, and um, I got a bit busy and ran around with the microphone. David, um, interesting what they've got to say, but I think the big picture thing this week is going to be the response to the National Energy Guarantee. Um, the COAG ministers meeting this Friday, of course, I think, as I predicted, they're going to give the amber light to more work to be done. But what did you make of the high-level working paper that was circulated on Friday? 
Well, I think the general feeling has been, as your article pointed out, that there is certainly an improvement in the design. There is still some missing elements. The first thing I would observe is for anyone who's interested in REC prices is that the document makes it clear that the REC market won't be closed uh, to new new projects so that uh, projects that are uh, constructed under the NEG uh, framework will still be able to sell their RECs. And so the outlook for the REC price, I think, is gloomy after about 2022. That's point one. Uh, and point two, I'm still not clear how this combination of the um, uh, 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 renewable energy guarantee and the reliability guarantee are actually going to ensure that we've got uh, new supply. And I personally am increasingly inclined to see that, uh, as I wrote in my article and presentation, that we, we really should have been more competition in the supply for new power. And it's pretty useless having an energy market when the renewable energy is free. So there's no merit order anymore. Yeah, look, it's interesting to see how this has evolved. Um, they talk about the reliability guarantee. And look, it's not entirely clear, but it looks to me as though it's incredibly light touch. Light touch to the actual point of they don't actually have a reliability guarantee, as far as I can tell. If you go back to what Finkel was saying and that one Josh Frydenberg took to the party room going way back this time last year, and he was showing graphs matching up wind and solar farms. And if you chuck a certain amount of battery storage on top, then it was going to cost X amount. But this is not what they're proposing at all. They're proposing a system-wide battery st um, sort of storage or backup, which is, which is fine. I think that makes much more sense than sort of loading up individual generators. But basically, it's really going to come about by what AEMO decides, which is going to be through its electricity statement of opportunities and annual updates, which will be modified as we go on if and when coal-fired generators um, retire or big loads such as... Um, um, up in the Hunter Valley or down in Victoria um, also retire. Yeah, so the situation I, I think we should consider it from is, and I'll be interested to hear what Victoria has to say. And look, one of the things I want to observe is just looking at the futures market. Uh, the ASX is publishing futures out to 2022 now. And what we see is for the first time uh, that in years that actually, or at least since Hazelwood closed, that New South Wales futures in 2022 have been struck at a higher price than those in Victoria. So it's in New South Wales that I'm expecting all the uh, problems to emerge as uh, Liddell closes and then, you know, Araran closes later. And because New South Wales, despite having raised 30 or $40 billion from the sale of electricity assets of one sort or another, including Snowy, hasn't put a dollar back into the sector. Um, uh, but the question is, let's say that the renewable guarantee has been satisfied and Araring announces it's going to close. How do you see that working, Giles? What do you think will happen to the electricity price in front of that closure? And, and, and how will the guarantees, um, you know, produce a new supply? I mean, uh, because it seems to me if the um, um, uh, renewables guarantee has been satisfied and no one's going to build anything until the last minute, uh, and then there'll be a mad rush again. Which you would think would actually save uh, favour battery storage and demand management. And um, one of the things that emerges to me out of this document 
is that they are looking very much at the supply, at the demand side um, focus, and I guess you could probably put battery storage in that camp as well. So very hard for anyone with a 10, 20, 30-year horizon, um, and you're probably talking about coal or gas assets there, to sort of engage in this market because it is going to be set by the ESU. They're kind of working on the principle that, as with Liddell, people come in with their proposals, the market will watch each other. If by three years it doesn't, three years out, it still doesn't look like enough has been built. That's when this, 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 this um, guarantee gets, this requirement gets triggered, and that's when people start having to sign contracts and um, and, and what have you. But um, the, de- the de- yes, yeah, so Giles, so the, the ESO is the is is, is the uh, statement of opportunities. I think you're referring to for those that, that might not be familiar. But my point, uh, well, I, I think the point you're making is that AEMO will end up with the responsibility. So we're, we're back in a planned environment anyway. Yep. And I can't, fight for the life of me, see why we can't have a steadier investment in new capacity, uh, because we know these retirements are coming. I mean, what is is, is, is Origin just suddenly going to unannounce the Araring <laughs> retirement? And uh, you know, we're going to go through this whole Liddell situation yet again. It's just nutty. Well, that's right. And this comes back to one of your favourite mechanisms, which um, a continuous set of um, auctions. So basically, you know, Liddell's going, you know, Araring's going. We need this amount we need this amount of capacity. What am I bid? That, that's right. And we don't not rely on price going up in the energy market, where, as I say, every new wind and PV farm is automatically going to be dispatched because it bids in at zero or lower. Uh, and the only thing you're going to be looking at is the amount of curtailment that you're going to get. I mean, I, I just think the current market design is very well, uh, poorly suited to producing a continuous stream of new supply to replace to basically completely replace the current generation fleet. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, this does seem to be a bit of a compromise between um, um, the AMC um, and John Pearce and his attachment to the market that he helped create, and also um, Audrey Ziegman from AEMO and her attachment to having control and centralised control of um, the the um helping keep the lights on um look but the key element here basically and this is the thing that's really going to decide whether the states are going to be on board particularly the labor states is going to be the emissions target and the treatment of offsets the treatment of additionality for state-based targets does that mean that if you've got a state-based target does that mean that everybody else has to try less hard um, it, and, and that comes out in a separate document, which at the time of doing this podcast, we have not seen. Curiously, it had not even been shown to the Energy Security Board, as I understand it. So they're kind of <laughs> swimming in the dark and the states hadn't seen it yet. So this is obviously the highly sensitive bit that Frydenberg's got to get past his coalition party room about making some effort to allow the gates to be open in the future, presumably, um, but also keeping his right wing at bay. Well, this is where the pressure comes on all the parties. And, and I mean, this is where I personally think New South Wales is, is still very much falling down on the ball. If they allow, it uh, depends on the way it's worked, but if the Victoria and Queensland stuff is just included in the overall target so that New South Wales doesn't have to do anything, I'd still question whether that solves New South Wales's problem and there's more transmission links are built. But So that's one thing. But then the other side of it is that in the same way that the pressure is going to come on Shane Rattenbury, uh, uh, to agree to it if all the other states do. I think the same pressure, even more so, was going to come onto the uh, reactionary part of the National Party and, and the Liberals to agree to it if everyone else has. So I guess it's the nature of politics. It's a deal that suits absolutely no one, um, but it's a deal that we might end up having. <laughs> Indeed. 
Well, look, um, we're obviously going to be subject to further analysis next week because I think um, people will be able to sit down and try and clarify a few things. Um, kind of interesting, one thing I just want to quickly point out that um, also stuck out at me was this idea that the behind-the-meter um, rooftop solar from all the consumers would contribute towards the emissions reductions targets of the retailers. Now, my question about that is that, one, how do they know who's got so much solar? And two, how, how do they know how much they're using? Because it's all behind the meter. So quite an interesting one on that one, I think. Well, absolutely. Although, as we know, the um, AEMO does publish its estimate of that uh, right right now in aggregate, but I don't know how they divide it up by postcode and, and, and whatever. Look, my estimate is there's still about 20 million tonnes of carbon reduction that's needed um, uh, as of today based on the year to March 31st. Um, And so I'm not quite sure whether all of that um, new renewables that's coming on stream, some of which is definitely late, and a few solar farms appear to have not even started, um, uh, is actually still going to be enough. There's still room for a bit more supply, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think so. Okay, David, look, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you very much for um, joining me again today. And um, thanks to our sponsors, um, SolarRay and WattWatches, who we've um, managed to interview as well. And look, um, all eyes focus this week on the Coag Energy Ministers meeting on Friday. And we'll be back next week at the with the Energy Insiders podcast with a full analysis of what occurred there. Charles, maybe we should go down to the Coag meeting and uh, camp outside the door and do a live broadcast with everyone as they come in. Uh, I think we might wait until they come out, actually. <laughs> let's, let, 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 let's see how that goes. We might just check out the surf uh, forecast for Friday first. But um, anyway, look, thank you, listeners. Um, thank you, David. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, give us your feedback. Uh, tell your friends about it. Leave a review. And we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by SolarRay Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.